Hi friends, welcome to Reframing Neurodiversity. I'm your host, Melissa Jackson, and I'm here to tell you it's time to see neurodivergence for what it truly is, a gift that benefits us all. As a former teacher, mom to two neurodivergent kids, and as a neurodivergent person myself, I know it's possible to see your neurowiring in a new way. That's why I'm on a mission to reframe the way we view neurodivergence as a collective and to empower us as neurodivergent adults and parents with the language and tools to advocate for ourselves and our kids. Join me each week as my guests and I share our personal experiences paired with cutting edge research, leaving you feeling seen, validated, and proud of the way your brain works. Ready to get started? Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Reframing Neurodiversity podcast. I am your host, Melissa Jackson, and I'm just really happy to be here with you guys today. I want to dive into a topic that really excites me, and I just want to share out my perspective around it because I don't know about you, but for myself and many of the families I've worked with, the school system itself and sort of these foundational principles that are at the root of this system have been really problematic in my life and in the lives of many people I know. If you listen to my first episode, you know that I come from this place from a really professional perspective, but also a personal perspective as a former educator and neurodivergent person myself and parent to neurodivergent children and advocate for other families. It's really just something that that's tough because we are in this system that's not really designed to support neurodivergent thinking. And it can be disheartening, right? When you feel like you're kind of this one person and you're up against this huge system and what do you do? And, you know, it just, yeah, it can be defeating. So today I want to really get into why the system is set up the way it is, being real about what are the implications and also empowering you with some thoughts, some action steps, and things we can do to really start shifting things because it is something that I think when we all come together and start having more conversations about is something that can shift. Let's start with our education system. Why is it the way it is? Why does it not work for so many people? And why are we still doing it this way? You know, that's really the question. So to answer these things, we really have to get back to the beginning. And that is the foundation of our education system was developed during a time in our history when we needed to build a strong and competitive nation. So what happened was our education system became very centralized and controlled by the government, and it became a tool to build a strong military, to educate people in a way so that the end goal was they were managers of corporations or could run factories or work on assembly lines and produce and compete in a way that would propel the nation forward. And, you know, during this time, it was the Industrial Revolution. This made sense. And so it was a very intentional end goal. And so the system was based upon that end goal. Here's where the tricky part comes in. We've just sort of over time continued with these same principles, these same belief systems, and perpetuated a system where we train people to continue to teach through this lane that really isn't supporting an end goal that's in alignment for our current 
time and place in history, right? So if you think about the intention or the goal of school originally was conformity, right? Standardization, efficiency. But now we're in a time when we want to be celebrating people's creativity and unique ideas and innovations and, you know, entrepreneurial mindsets and and unique solutions to problems. That's really what we need now. And so we're still operating on a system that was designed with an end goal that isn't really in alignment with what we need today. So that's really the issue. So when we think about it in this way, it's not it's not like it was bad because at that time it served its purpose. But what needs to happen as as people present today within the system, we have to start reflecting on is this still working, right? And is it supporting our end goal, which is to have people who do think for themselves and can come up with unique and different ways to solve problems. And the way school is set up, it really discourages that. You know, if we really get honest with the way we operate as a system, it's very much there's one right way to do things. And if you do it in this way, you're rewarded. And if you're not, you're penalized. And we get people to buy into it with these you know, we call it extrinsic motivation. So that would be like, if you do it this way, then you earn points or stickers or a prize from the prize box or a pizza party. And But it's not really a system that embraces different ways of doing things, tapping into intrinsic motivation, which would be what are people genuinely interested in? What do they care about? How can we excite and elicit curiosity that's meaningful and lasting it's really about control and conformity to do it in this one way and give this one certain answer in this one certain way through this one certain modality. And if you don't, you're sort of made to feel like you're broken and that something's wrong with you. And let's let's send you down to the teacher who can fix you to be ultimately more neurotypical. So this is really the origin of where this deficit model came from, which if you're not familiar with what that is, that is – it's sometimes referred to the medical model as well, but it's it's this philosophy that we've all adopted in education and even in, you know, the medical arena is how do we identify the problem with people, try to fix them, and lead with remediating those weaknesses in order to make them more neurotypical, you know? And we really skip over the strengths, the gifts, the curiosity about the person and it's a huge disservice to so many people because they're walking around feeling broken when they're not. It's just we're wired differently and we're still operating on a system that didn't understand how to honor value and create equitable environments for different ways of doing and being. So what do we do with this, right? What do we do when we've got a model that marginalizes people who think differently, who need things that are different than neurotypicals, and puts labels on them that contain disorder, deficit, you know, right in the terminology, and really overlook the gifts that these individuals possess, you know? It's so 
what do we do when that's just the norm and that's just the way it's done? So the first thing I want to say is it starts with questioning the default. So we've been served this default as a collective of here's the way it is. Here's the way school is done. Here's the right way to do it. We all accept it. And there's, you know, a good and a bad and a right and a wrong. And you're penalized if you don't do it in this way. And even if we don't agree with it or if it's not working, we kind of just feel like, uh, it's the way school is. So my challenge to us is to like actually step back from that and ask ourselves, okay, but is that working? You know, what is the goal of school? And what are the implications of the way we're doing it now? Because what I'm seeing are a lot of kids who, even if they go through the motions and learn the game of school and succeed in that model, they're left feeling unmotivated. They're not really engaged. They don't particularly enjoy school or maybe they, maybe it does work for them, but then at the end of it all, it's like, who am I? What do I like? Where, what am I passionate about? It's like, we don't really have this system that's set up that allows people to, to explore that and get curious about it and dive deeply into what they're good at and interested in, right? We're kind of this system of here are all the boxes, check the boxes, you need to learn these things just to, and you kind of be good at all of it. And that's just really not how it is. We're not all good at everything. We have strengths and weaknesses. We have interests and things that we're passionate about. And they're there for a reason. They're there because those are the things we're supposed to be doing. Those are the things that we're good at and we're here to contribute. And so what if we allowed people to actually dive into that? What if we allowed people to actually get really good at what they're interested in, good at? Because that's the real world, right? Like that's ultimately when we're going to be out in the world doing things that we find satisfying is when we're doing things that are in alignment with what we're interested in and what we do well. So we really have to step back and just check these these ideas that we've kind of taken on, you know? And it's like, so if the goal of school is to encourage a love of learning and to figure out what you're passionate about and enjoy and have developed resiliency to move through challenges and you can take risks and move through failures as opportunities to grow and refine what you want to do and maybe shift lanes and you know, that's not what we're doing in the classroom. You know, we're we're actually doing the opposite. We're creating these systems where kids are afraid to take risks. They're afraid to fail because they're penalized if they do, you know? And so there's just a lot of messaging there that's very counterproductive to actually what I think serves us individually and collectively. So when you think about it, if you're neurodivergent and you're, you've grown up in this system and there's been this sort of one way that's been privileged as the, not only the right way to do things, but also like the option to do things, you know? So it's like, say I want to write, say the, say the assignment is you need to write a, a five-paragraph essay on this certain topic. Well, if you're maybe – dyslexic or have dysgraphia, but you're also really bright, have great creative ideas, have complex thoughts, you're immediately going to feel disabled in that environment, right? You're going to feel like something's wrong with you, like you're not smart because if you aren't given options that 
equitably give you access to show what you know, to show your deep thinking, to show your complex ideas because you have maybe some challenges with written output or spelling, you're going to immediately take on all these things of like, I'm not smart, something's wrong with me, why am I even doing this? And what does that lead to? Feeling unmotivated, feeling disengaged, feeling, you know, impacts our self-worth, all the things. And so when you think about it as the environment really having this influence over how we experience our own neurowiring. Do we experience it as, oh, I've got these strengths and I have these challenges and I know how to utilize my strengths to support my challenges? Or is it like there's no option even other than this one way which really falls right into my areas of struggle, so why even try? You know what I mean? It's like the environment has so much power over the way we feel about ourselves and what we can produce and create. And so what if we started looking at the environment and really thinking about it like how can we set this up in a new way that really is equitable and allows all children in equal opportunity to thrive, you know? And that's going to take a minute. That's going to take us stepping back because not because we have bad intentions or because we don't want all children to do well, but because of the messaging we've all received for so long about the way it should be done. So it's like this active work to question the way it's always been done. So, you know, I one of my favorite thought leaders in the field of neurodiversity is Jonathan Mooney, and he has a quote that says, so we're not people with disabilities, we're people with differences who become disabled by the environments that we find ourselves in. And I just think that's so powerful because when you think about that dyslexic child with dysgraphia, if they're only given the option to write that five-paragraph essay in the one standard way, like get out your pencil and paper and write that paper, they're going to feel like they have a deficit or a disorder or a disability. But what if we shifted to a more strength-based approach where we offered options and choices to all kids? Like, And there was this opportunity to select how you want to access the information. Maybe it's not just, oh, go read in this book. Maybe it was, oh, no, you have permission to go check out a YouTube video. You have permission to watch this documentary or this movie or and then discuss it with a friend. And maybe you want to do a graphic organizer where you have illustrations and little words and create almost like a, a, a sequential story with your illustrations and retell it to someone. And, oh, you don't want to write it? Maybe you want to do an oral presentation or a PowerPoint presentation or, you know, it just there's the choices, the choices, the flexibility. And it doesn't have to be targeted at one person. It doesn't have to be targeted at the neurodivergent people. It could just be like, how about all kids have more flexibility and choice and you can select your lane and yes, we all have the same end goal, the same lesson, the same objective we need to learn. But what if we could get there in a way that really utilized our strengths and built that meaningful engagement and that buy-in and that curiosity and that love for learning, which is ultimately when we look at the end goal, so much more in alignment, you know? 
And it's interesting, some of the more current research talks about there's three things that really increase motivation in people. It's autonomy, relatedness, and competency. And so if you think about it, autonomy would look like autonomy in choice. You know, that freedom to to find ways that how can this align with my interests? How can this align with the way I like to do things? And then there's the relatedness, making it meaningful, making it something that matters, something that can relate to the real world, something that's motivating. And there's that connection, you know, to what we're learning. And then the last was the competency, which that is that feeling successful, right? So if we can feel good about what we're producing. So if we're that dyslexic child with dysgraphia, and now we've been given options to choose, options to make it meaningful, options on how we access the information, options on how we demonstrate what we've learned, it's going to be more reflective of the complexity of our thoughts, of the creativity we possess. And then we're going to feel proud of what we produced, which is going to build self-esteem and engagement and meaningful connection and wanting to buy in and learn more and more and more as opposed to just the game of school of following the rules right of following the okay I checked all the boxes that don't mean anything but I know it's what I have to do in order to get this grade or to get that pizza party or to get that extra recess or to just not be in trouble you know which is just leaving so many people feeling flat and uninterested and thinking they they don't love learning when it's really not about not loving learning. It's about not loving the environment you're finding yourself in because it is really rigid and privileging a select few that it may work for. So how do we change it, right? So how do we how do we start to advocate for ourselves, for our children, for people we care about who are within the system, it's not working. And we feel almost <laughs> like, you know, what can we do? It's really hard. It's it's really hard. So just some initial steps I'm going to tell you is getting curious about the kid in front of you, whether you're a parent or a teacher getting curious about what are they interested, what lights them up, what, how can you, and how can you bring those things into the things that are stickier and less interesting, you know? The same child I was just speaking about earlier, she was given an assignment and the teacher assigned them, they had to write about sports and she, she didn't like sports. Um, so it was very hard to even begin the assignment because there wasn't that interest in the assignment. So now we've got something that, you know, written out puts a challenge and we have no interest in it. That's like a double whammy. <laughs> it's really hard to get motivated to learn this skill, right? So what we did in this situation was we decided how can we get creative about what you are interested in? And this particular child was really social, high emotional intelligence, really intuitive. And so we went in and we found somebody. We decided to write about Serena and Venus Williams because we went into the family dynamics and she was really interested in like the dynamics between the sisters and the parents. And we got to go into some of that, the emotional terrain around the experience of honing the skill of being a superior athlete. And so we kind of bypassed the sports thing and we found a way to leverage her interest into the same assignment, right? 
So it takes a little extra effort to think about, but when we can get curious about what kids are genuinely interested in, what they enjoy, and give them time to do those things, it really is what's going to spark this love of learning and this desire to engage because there's that meaningful connection, right? And then they feel that sense of competency and success and that that just builds the buy-in to want to do it more and more and more. The interesting thing about all of this is that it's really not something that specifically needs to be done for just neurodivergent kids, but it's strength-based learning benefits all children, providing more choice, more autonomy, more flexibility, more connection to things that are meaningful to their lives and what they care about All of that can be done for all kids, but what it does require is for us to step back and reflect upon the things that we've been taught as the right way to do things, the way we think should be done, and to start really getting honest about those questions. But are they working? Are they supporting the end goal I'm trying to achieve here? And if not, how can we shift? And just in those small pivots, how can we shift? How can I start speaking up about this works for my kid or this works for myself and this doesn't and finding ways to adapt little by little and I really believe that the more we start reflecting on these things consciously and having these conversations this is how change happens right but if we're all just complacent with the way it's always been it's really tough So that's why I'm just – I'm really excited to have this conversation with you guys today because I think it's just so important for us to question the truths we've sometimes internalized. You know, is this this actually true or is this just messaging I've taken on and I'm on autopilot and what the heck? That doesn't even make sense. Why are we doing it this way? You know, I think that's that's – the answer, just getting curious, getting curious, having more conversations, speaking up, and trusting that the more we talk about these things and the more we make these shifts in our own lives, it does have this trickle effect. And eventually we can make real change on a grander scale, but it does start with us. And realizing that if the way everyone else is doing it doesn't work for your child or yourself, it doesn't mean something is wrong with you. You know, it. in that, again, it's like the message we've received is that something is wrong with us. But it's not true. It's really just rooted in an old system that's no longer relevant, that was never really accurate. And it's time to look at it. So I hope this conversation spark some curiosity in you to start asking those questions of yourself, of your child, of your child's teacher, and trying to come together to create creative solutions, you know, and not blaming, not shaming. We're all learning and growing and evolving, and that's the point. And the more that we can get curious and have these conversations, the more we're going to see things start to shift in ways that are more equitable and aligned for more people. So I am really excited next week. I have to tell you guys, we have a really fun guest coming on, Anna Fabrega, who wrote The Learning Game. And she dives into a lot of the stuff we're talking about here. And I'm really excited 
to have a conversation with her. So tune into next week and we're going to dive more deeply into, you know, how do we move towards a system that creates a love of learning and engages kids in a meaningful way. In addition, keep an eye out. In the coming weeks, I'm going to be dropping a mini course for reframing neurodiversity that's going to be all about shifting your mindset around what it means to be neurodivergent, getting clear on what your or your child's strengths and interests are and how to apply them to the environment. Also, just how to support those areas that are are more challenging, you know, like with emotional regulation and executive function and just how to increase our trust in our own knowing about how to speak up for yourself and how to speak up for your child and how to start incorporating strengths first and then support the challenges. Because it really is amazing how much we can shift when we just adjust our mindset. Okay, until next week, friends. Talk soon. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. Remember to subscribe and review so you don't miss a thing. Is your child struggling to thrive in their current classroom setting? Then you need to head to the show notes to snag my free shareable pamphlet for your child's teacher. It breaks down how to create equitable learning environments for all students based on the leading research in the field of neurodiversity. Because what benefits neurodivergent students benefits all kids.